less than a minute after I went through those procedures in my mind, it felt like the whole right side of the plane exploded, and particularly in the back, and we fishtailed, and that was the plane hitting us. What happened was our captain realized at the last minute that he was on an active runway, so he moved slightly to the left, which angled the airplane, fortunately. If, it ha ha if he hadn't done that, it would have been a head-on with both planes, so um, I don't think anyone would have survived that impact. This is Amy, the Senior Group Fitness Instructor at the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. Are you looking for a spark of inspiration to bring to your next class? Find us at IndoorCycleInstructor.com. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. I'm John McGowan, your host, and I'm really excited about 2012. I mean, really excited. We've got this phenomenal lineup of contributors in place, including Tom Scotto with Cycling Fusion, Jim Karanis with the Indoor Cycling Group of North America in support of Livestrong Fitness, Cameron Shinati with Stages Indoor Cycling, plus no shortage of surprises coming up very soon. As I'm so excited about 2012, I thought I would kind of kick off the year with something that I think you'll find both motivational and inspirational, which has always been the goal of the Indoor Cycle Instructor podcast. I want you to meet ICI Pro member and relatively new instructor, Kay Ruane. And Kay has a very interesting story about something that she was involved in a number of years ago and the path that led her to not only recover from some very serious injuries, but to actually become Tom Scotto's substitute. Very encouraging, and uh, I hope you'll enjoy listening. I'd like everybody to meet Kay Ruane, and Kay teaches for Tom uh, whenever Tom is not available. Kay, welcome to the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, what a what a great honor it must be to be Tom's substitute. Or is it is it only because it's really early morning and no one else will sub? <laughs> no, it's actually 6 p.m. on a Wednesday for a variety of reasons. At first, it was he would get stuck in traffic and I had just gotten certified and I happened to be in his class anyway. So that's how it kind of started. But now he's asking me, which I consider a big honor. Okay, so help me understand, you because well we talked earlier. You were are just recently certified. Mm -hmm. August jumped in as an ICI Pro member to add to your education, mm -hmm. a and were you taking Tom's classes on a regular basis, kind of as a mentor mentee thing? More as a participant. I just love spinning, and I've done it ever since nineteen um, ninety nine or ninety eight. And I go regularly to spinning. So I was in his class ever since he started at the health club I go to. Which is? Wellbridge Athletic. Oh, Wellbridge. Yeah, okay. in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Kay, the reason I asked you to be a participant on here really wasn't to talk about the fact that you're Tom's regular substitute. Although that is... That <laughs> could take an hour. <laughs> yes, but that's impressive in its own right. But something that happened to you that was really traumatic and that you had to really fight through it to even walk, much less 
be an indoor cycling instructor. My understanding was that you were a flight attendant with Northwest Airlines back in the early 90s. Tell us what happened. I had been flying 11 and a half years at that point, and I was commuting home from Tokyo. And I got into Detroit and missed my connecting flight. So I had to spend the night. The next morning, there was heavy snow, and uh, I got on an aircraft that subsequently crashed. There were, was heavy fog in, on the airport grounds after the, um, the snowstorm, and it was below minimum visibility, but they hadn't closed the airport. There were a variety of errors that contributed to the accident. We wandered accidentally on an active runway, and we were hit by an oncoming a plane, um, just oncoming plane uh, going in excess of 100 miles an hour rolling up for takeoff directly at us. Just horrible. And, and yeah. j- just for everybody's information, it was Northwest Airlines Flight 1482. That's correct, yeah. Uh, on December 3rd, 1990, in which when you say you're commuting, that you, meaning you're, you're taking a spare seat on the airplane. I was, yes. To try to get back. Oh. Okay. Can, can, can you even describe what that was like? Well, uh, it was pretty shocking, actually. I just remember being a little surprised that we were were in this heavy fog and we were taxing for quite some time. So my I felt like there was something just a little off right before impact and I was sitting in first class because one of the flight attendants have had moved me from the back as a favor which was fortunate. And so I was sitting in first class, noticing that we were taxiing for quite a long time. There was heavy fog all around us, and it felt like we were all alone, almost like everything was muffled around us. It just felt wrong. So in my mind, I went through emergency procedures. If something happened, I realized there was no one over wing to help. There was a flight attendant in the front and in the back, but no one over wing. So I imagined myself jumping up and helping over wing. It was really peculiar that I would have this, you know, idea. And not less than a minute after I went through those procedures in my mind, it felt like the whole right side of the plane exploded. And particularly in the back, and we fishtailed. And that was the plane hitting us. What happened was our captain realized at the last minute that he was on an active runway, so he moved slightly to the left, which angled the airplane, fortunately. If, it ha- ha- if he hadn't done that, it would have been a head-on with both planes. So um, I don't think anyone would have survived that impact. But as it was, um, the wing of the plane sliced through the cabin, and that's where the fuel is stored. So it sprayed jet fuel inside the cabin, and we were all covered in jet fuel. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so that that was very scary. Um, Afterwards, my clothes smelled like jet fuel and, you know, burnt stuff, of course. But anyway, it knocked off the back engine. We were on a DC-9, knocked off the back engine, and it started a fireball, which turned and followed the fuel trail. So there was a big fireball rolling toward... Inside the cabin. Inside the cabin. So my my initial instinct, I followed immediately. I jumped up and I was standing between first class and the back. And I noticed that there was a really big stream of fire, almost like someone was holding a blowtorch to where the engine used to be. And then the fire turned a sharp corner making a fireball that was rolling right for me and for us. And 
pieces of the ceiling were falling down like it was raining red, I mean, snowing red. So then I got caught in a stampede of other panicking passengers. And of course they were panicked because, you know, this fireball was right behind us. And so we jostled to the front. And next thing I remember, it felt like a big slab of concrete heaved up and hit me in the face. Whereas in fact, I fell or was pushed out of the airplane and the evacuation slide should have been there, but it had malfunctioned. So immediately I just felt intense pain in my back. And then I started passing out. I remember thinking, it's a really good time for a nap right now, you know, because I could, my body couldn't handle the pain. So I started falling asleep. And then another passenger said, you've got to get away. And he kind of helped me, but I couldn't walk. And so I was kind of walking in an L shape, trying to stay upright, but I couldn't. And so I kind of collapsed after that. Well, let me just back up a little bit. So did you open the, the exit door? Mm-mm. I didn't have a chance. Uh, I mean, what it felt like was someone's suit jacket. Well, first of all, it was really hard to breathe um, because the fumes and the toxic fumes and the smoke and everything, you could barely see anything. The emergency lights didn't help at all because you just could not see anything. And then I was pressed against a man's suit jacket. And the next thing I remember, this big slab of concrete coming up on my face. So in between, I don't remember anything. There was no way I could reach for, for a handle to, to um, make the slide work because it. So, so somebody else opened the door ahead of you. Yes. The flight attendant in the first class. Yeah. Okay. But then you just got caught in the stampede stampede and you just were literally ejected out of the airplane. Correct. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. You know, and, and there was a lot of really. I read the report. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know that we want to get into the one detail, but it was tragic. It was. What happened to you physically from the fall and the accident? Well, they took me to a local hospital, and um, I remember I was kind of in shock. So after a while, the pain went away, and I kept saying, I'm sure I'm fine. I'm sure I'm fine. I'm sure I can sit up. But really, I knew I couldn't. They took me into x-ray. At first, they said, oh, you'll probably be able to go home because I was so perky and full of adrenaline. And so they put me into a CAT scan and realized that I had what's called an L2 compression burst fracture. So it was essentially like someone smashed um, one of my vertebrae like a beer can. And the there were bone fragments in my spinal canal. So um, luckily L2 is right below where the spinal cord ends, but there's still what they call the quadra equina, where all the nerves going to your back, and I mean to your legs and your lower body um, are, and you can still become paralyzed. So they thought I would be paralyzed because there were so many bone fragments in there. Later I learned that it was truly a miracle that these bone fragments missed every major nerve. And so it was like, I mean, it was just amazing that happened. They were ready to do surgery at at this local hospital, but realized it would be quite extensive. So they transferred me to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and they were great there. They had just started treating these Um, injuries more conservatively than just jumping in with surgery. So they put me in neurointensive care and um, waited to see if I would develop any neurological symptoms, which I did not, fortunately. I avoided this major surgery with those big steel rods, eight-inch steel rods in your back. Actually, Gloria Estefan had that surgery. She had a very similar injury to mine in her bus. Wow. I don't know if you remember that, but doctors kept comparing my injuries to her. So. 
so fast forward a couple of months after the accident, what was your physical state then? Well, at that point, um, they put me in a body brace um, that went from my neck to my uh, hips. And I had to keep that on for four months. I had a home nurse come in to help me bathe and everything on a daily basis. I had a shower chair graspers to put on um, and these devices to put my socks on because I couldn't bend over. They, mm-hmm. they said, do not bend over no matter what you do because that, you know, my back was very unstable. So this was essentially in lieu of surgery. They were trying to fuse naturally my back and wait for the, the bone fragments to dissolve. And so um, that was a long process. I couldn't move much. Um, w- when we would go places where there was a lot of walking involved, I would use a wheelchair. So it, it kept us a little active, fortunately. We even came to Boston for a conference my husband did and went across the Massachusetts Bridge with me in a wheelchair. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, it was interesting. But I went to physical therapy every single day. At first, I was just on a leash for some reason in physical therapy. Um, I'm not sure what they would do if I fell being on this leash, if they would reel me in like a fish. Keep you from running away. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I hate this. Goodbye. Um, Anyway, so walking was difficult. And uh, I did most of it in a pool, a swimming pool in physical therapy, a warm pool. And uh, walked back and forth day after day doing, and then did some mat exercises and things. And that was about the extent of it. And, uh, you know, walking in a grocery store was really difficult. Um, Anything was difficult. And then, uh, so after I got the brace off, things improved slightly. But then I, it was discovered that I had another injury, um, or a couple actually related to the accident. One was ulnar nerve entrapment. And um, so they had to do a a transposition, it's called, uh, um, a surgery, uh, and they had to put it submuscular, so under my muscle, and that um, was quite an extensive surgery. I have this huge scar from, um, you know, just below my, halfway below my elbow up up to almost under my arm. And, oh my. and so, yeah. And after that, I w- did lost my range of motion. So I was, my arm was locked at, at 45 degrees and I had to wear braces for eight months. Um, I had physical occupational therapy every day in addition to the physical therapy. So that was okay. So, so okay. So you're, so you're struggling with all this mm-hmm. and when did you regain your functionality of everything? It was just a very gradual process. And the problem then was uh, whenever my back hurt, my physical therapist would tell me to back off because that was their current understanding of how to deal with these type of injuries. But then I subsequently moved to Minneapolis several years after the accident and found a good physiatrist at uh, Abbott Northwestern Hospital at the Sister Kenny Institute. What's a physiatrist? I don't know that term. I'm not sure officially how to describe this, but is a physician who specializes in rehabilitation medicine, and in this case, particularly spinal injuries. Got it. And she was absolutely wonderful. And she said, listen, you, you have to push through a little bit of pain, but we have to do it, you know, in very incremental, tiny, tiny doses. And so, um, I would walk just a little bit further, just a little bit further, and I would really, you know, pay attention to a 
quarter, a fifth of a mile, a quarter of a mile, a half a mile. And I remember I would walk around Lake Harriet in Minneapolis, but I wouldn't make it all around the lake at first. Which is about three miles. It's three miles. And that was my huge goal. I thought if I could meet that goal, I will be golden, you know. And so I had no idea where I would end up. I was just walking up this ladder very slowly, one step at a time, literally, and just focusing on the next step. So I remember senior citizens would pass me. And then the day that I passed a senior citizen, I was so <laughs> excited. Felt like Rocky like there, I bet. Amazing. Yes. And then um, little by little, it took, I don't know, I, I honestly don't know, maybe a year or two years. I don't know. But anyway, after I got around like Harriet, I said to this doctor, I said, listen, I really want to run again. I wasn't a huge runner before, but I did it recreationally. So um, she said, there's no problem with running, even though my neurosurgeon before had told me, your running days are over. So she said, no, no, that's not true. And so we'll put you on a program that will get you into running. So run just, you know, three minutes and then resume your walking. Run just three minutes. My running was basically like a teeny, teeny jog, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so that became longer and longer and longer. And I turned the corner without realizing it. I stopped seeing this doctor after a time. She hooked me up to a really good Iyengar yoga instructor. And the physical therapy there was absolutely outstanding, too. And so I made this gradual kind of segue into working out. And they knew trainers, and they were all in the same facility. So I would start out with, I started lifting weights with very tiny, you know, two-pound weights, four-pound weights. Um, And I stuck with that for like a year. I mean, this was, like I said, a very long process. And then pretty soon I was running more and more. Now, I had never been trained in running, and I didn't know what you know, constituted a lot of miles of running. So eventually, I started running for an hour, then an hour and a half, because I thought, this is kind of fun. I can't help myself. I just love this. And I learned the discipline of working out every day or working, you know, physically every day and working through pain and so forth. So eventually, I was running 10 miles every day, but I didn't realize. You were running 10 miles every day. I was, yes. After all this. Okay. So, all right. When did you get on the bicycle? I got on the bicycle when I heard about these great spinning classes. And I heard this from a friend in Minneapolis. So, I went to one of the few places in Minneapolis that had spinning at the time. And at first, I found the experience very intimidating because they would stress, and rightly so, safety issues like, you know, strapping your feet in properly and using the brake if you lose control of your pedal and how weighted the, you know, how the flywheels weighted and all the things that we tell, you know, new people. But it felt like we were being strapped in for a space ride. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't know if I really want to do this. <laughs> because I think a new a spin class for a new person is a very intimidating ex- experience. And as an well, and, and you're right. And we forget yeah, that. Yeah, you forget that entirely. Yeah. So I try and put myself back in that day and... And, you know, tell students, you know, this is not something you should be intimidated by. These are just safety rules. They probably won't happen, but you have to be very careful. And as a, as a former flight attendant, you're good at giving That's right. Of- yeah, I give my little safety speech. <laughs> so I just got hooked on it. After three times, I, I often tell people, give it three 
three times, three classes, and you probably be hooked. Or you won't, and it's not for you. you know? Okay, so now fast forward, what brought you to want to be an instructor? Well, I moved here to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and started going to this wonderful health club that's just a few blocks away in Harvard Square. And I uh, just attended the classes for about, I don't know, almost about 10 years. I would say, and got to know the instructors. And this one instructor in particular, um, her name's Vanessa Cadu. She and I have very similar tastes in music. So I w- I started making her playlists because I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed making playlists and thinking about what you do with your body during spin class and what song should follow another in those terms, not knowing how to build a spin class myself or an indoor cycle class, I should say, um, being generic about it. But I, Well, no, but you're a spinning instructor. That's true, so you yeah. Spin. So yeah. spinning, right. And so I would just compile these playlists, and she was really amazed because she said, you have a knack for this. I, I mean, I can play this in entirety, and often she did, and would you know, build a class that was quite appropriate. So I, she encouraged me quite a bit to get certified, and, and I thought, well, why not? You know, I'm already kind of doing it anyway. I taught a few classes, just, you know, practice classes with my husband as as my um, instructee. Okay, <laughs> and it perfect. it went quite well. So I got certified. And um, pretty soon after that, I took over Tom's classes as a sub. So it was jumping into the fire. <laughs> well, what a story, though. My gosh. Yeah. I mean, you go from a situation where you don't know you're going to live through it. That's right, yeah. And amazing. Utterly amazing. Now, we didn't even get to the point where you're a commercial artist. Oh, right, yes. <laughs> so, so, so the creativity does, is, is something that comes naturally to you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, so when to, to bring this back into the context that listeners to the Indoor Cycle Instructor podcast would expect – what type of classes do you teach when you sub for Tom? Do you have a particular profile or format or, you know, what, uh, or a objective, you know, what, yeah. well, what, what do you, do you feel like you're, comp- you feel compelled to deliver something different than a normal class? Slightly, because the people who come to Tom's class are almost 100% regulars. They expect an extremely hard class and I can't you know, give them, say, a recovery class without them throwing, you know. Their- well, really, this is like a dirty little secret. <laughs> so you're saying that Tom's classes are always hard. Well, he makes them perfect. So hard in a good way. You know, they're extremely and impeccably designed. Uh, we work hard, but we don't kill ourselves. I mean, he has a pace just so. So you know, I I feel like I have a responsibility to make this the best class I can make given the resources I have now as a new instructor and my knowledge base, um, which is continually growing, of course, hopefully. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I would say, you know, I... I focus on different types of rides and a lot, you know, I've often been in his class the week prior, so I would pay attention to what he's doing and he often has a big picture uh, training plan. So he will say, 
you know, now is the time where we're getting ready for, you know, a race. So we're going to be focusing on this type of, you know, maybe intervals or strength and that kind of thing. So then I'll in turn try and, you know, make a class that seems appropriate to what his goals are since it's an every Wednesday crowd. Um, Got it. Okay. Yeah. But if I'm teaching for someone else, I, I kind of, you know, I, I do more, well, I do endurance with him and, and that sort of thing, but I just crank it up a tiny bit more because these are very experienced cyclists. Some of the other classes, there's more new people or people who do it, you know, who, who, do a multitude of other kinds of things or, or who are fairly sedentary, but they come in for their rides. So, you know, keeping that all in mind and trying to make each class appeal and, you know, be, uh, be, um, doable, I guess the only word I can think of for, you know, (laughs) that's a word. Yeah. For someone who's just walking in as a beginner and for, you know, some of Tom's people who, who ride, you know, on their bikes every weekend and in the Vermont, um, hills and that kind of thing. Well, yes, and there you, you're right, exactly. And and honestly, worst case, if no no instructor showed up and you just turn on some music, those self directed people will probably do their lead themselves. Yeah, in fact, that's how when I first started, I thought, well, you know, it's me or nothing. It's me or no class, and so that calmed me down quite a bit. It's like I do not have to be Tom, and I am certainly not going to be Tom, and that's quite all right. I will just do the best I can do right here, right now, because that's what I learned going through rehab is today I'll show up. I'll do the best I can right here, right now. And that's, you know, that's all you can do. Amazing. You know, I, I, because I think, especially if you're listening to this and you're a new instructor, yeah. uh, I, and you are, but you see, but you're different. You've got, you've got the street cred to go along with your title. Okay. Uh, the, uh, but I think in just having talked to a lot of them, I, I, I get a sense that they're intimidated that everything is about them. Yeah. Where they don't recognize that, again, the people in the class, they're there, 99% of them are self-directed to the point where they showed up, especially for early morning classes. Yeah. They don't need you for everything. You know, they're, they rely on themselves. Yeah, you have to trust the people in there, too. I think you're right. What do you mean by that? I um, trust in their abilities, trust in their motivation. I mean, you know, it's, it, I think it's really good to be motivating as a, an instructor, but I think you have to have a lot of respect for the people who are there, the participants, and kind of to the best you can know where they're coming from. Oh, you're exactly right. And, and granted, because you, as you're talking about teaching for Tom, there's an instructor who I... Uh, who is very very energetic? Yeah, and uh, they people just love her, and I have to completely change my personality when I sub <laughs> when I sub for her. But I'm always the first person she'll text on Sunday morning, say, "John, I don't feel well. Will you teach my class?" Um, and 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 as far as you know, the class seems to enjoy it. I mean, that you know, there's not a problem there. But but in that class, there are a lot of people there that without that external stimulus would do nothing. That's true. Yeah. They will ju- they will just sit there until you tell them exactly what to do. And what you're t- what I'm hearing you say is that Tom's class is very different from that. They're self-directed athletes. That's right. Yeah. In other classes I've taught as I said that you need to be a little bit different. Maybe more mo- uh, well, it's not that 
you're, I'm not motivating, hopefully in Tom's class, I'm motivating it, you know, but I think too, there's a struggle as a new instructor and I'm still struggling with it a little. It takes a while to find your own way, to find your own way of teaching because uh, there's instructors at Wellbridge, they're all excellent and they all have a very different style and I appreciate every single one of their styles. There's not really a wrong one and, and I feel like eventually I will come up with, and I've already started to come up with my own style because you motivate people through your type of personality too. You know, I'm not a yeller. I'm not going to say, you know, that, that much. I mean, I, I'm more of a, like, you know, coach you through with a calm, but, 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 you know, kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it. Were you going to say authoritative? Not really authoritative. That's not a good word, but you know, okay. a sure voice, um, confident, confident and, um, encouraging because I feel like being encouraging is really important because it sure helped me when I was going through all that stuff, um, with rehab. So, but you had some people and forgive me, listener, this is really fascinating to me. And so I'm just kind of letting it run. <laughs> okay. So, so this will be one of the longer episodes we've had in a while, but, uh, which is just fine though. Don't no, no, Please stick with me, Kay. Okay. Uh, explain that what you meant by that, the motivation that you received from others while you were going through all your rehabilitation. So I would say people who believed in me, you know, because it's hard when you have that kind of injury and you, you've heard that your running days are over and not only that, but you have a back of a 60 year old and I was only 34 at the time. So, um, when you hear that, that's not very motivating. So once I got to Minneapolis and found this doctor, she was very motivating, you know, and she believed in me and it helped me believe in myself. So I think believing that, you know, in your students is really important. How, how did she demonstrate to you that she believed in you? I mean, it's one thing to say it, but, mm -hmm. but, but demonstrating it sometimes is a very different thing. I think it's through encouragement. So I would come back with, you know, I, I mean, I had to do the work. Otherwise, you know, she wouldn't probably be that, that encouraging, but, um, I had to do the work. So I guess I should take some credit for it, but she would point it out. She would say, look, look what you've done. This is wonderful. Did she hold you accountable at some level? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Not allowing you to quit. Right. But uh, it's, you know, with the, obviously, yeah, I mean, with it's, probably with a gentle touch, not my, the, my personality to be a quitter or even to suggest that I wanted to quit. So I'm not sure how she would handle that being, I don't know how to put this. This is a tough one. Well, here's what I'm hearing. Okay. And maybe it's part of it. My brain is interjecting part of it is that the people that believed in you potentially didn't ex accept excuses or, um, it, 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 does that make sense? Yeah. Or, or, or didn't try to make excuses for you. That's right. It's, but it's a weird combination because it's a balance. So it's a balance between that and saying, look, you don't feel like working out today, but you have to, it's not an option, but you show up and you do what you, uh, just do what you can do. And so I feel like, especially with beginners, you know, putting too much pressure on them, you know, you've got to follow everything I say, you've got to do these sprints, you know, at 110 RPMs, you know, right now, it, it, even seasoned athletes can't do that all the time, you're having a bad day. And so, so in a way, it, 
it's not excusing, but it's understanding. So it's a really fine balance between understanding, but encouraging someone to to just show up because people who are heroes in my mind at the health club are the ones who have injuries. They come in and they do the pool every single day. They're 85. They do the pool every single day. They hobble in and do a class. What wisely or not, I don't know, but, but they work through it and they show up. I think showing up is the main thing really. Mm Mm-hmm. No, and, I, and I've and i got pictures in my brain right now about some people that I know that are exactly like you describe. And you think, oh, my gosh, how do they? How do they do it? And, you know, how do they get up every morning? Too and about, yet there they are. The thing, too, about your students is I think sometimes we jump to conclusions. We think someone's being really lazy because they're not, you know, doing exactly what we say. But. But unless you know them well, you don't know what's going on. You don't know if they're going through chemotherapy. I mean, I I tend to give people a benefit of a doubt. It's just my nature. And sometimes maybe too much. But I think there's a fine line. I mean, you have to balance that line, you know, with understanding and being, you know, encouraging people to just show up and do what they can and being motivating and pushing them. And I think both are important, but, but it's a balance. It is. Wow, this was fascinating, Kay. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> so for on some Wednesday evening, if you, what club again was it? Wellbridge. But I, Wellbridge, which which location? Uh, in Harvard Square. It, so it is the Harvard yeah, Square it's one. It's in the ride. Charles okay. Hotel. And by the way, though, I do have a permanent class on Friday at noon now, starting January first. Oh. So. Con- congratulations! Thank you. Oh, good for you. All right. Okay. Well, Kay Ruane fascinating and I certainly enjoy that you've shared this with us thank Thank you you, John it was a pleasure being on 